When I first became a Christian, or, or let me say, when I first got serious about being a Christian and following God, I was about 15. I was about to go into year 11 and I made a vow. I said, I am never gonna sin again. That is it. Me and sin, we are done with. Well, that vow lasted about two days. I don't know what it was that I first did, but I can tell you something in school, maybe even just lied about why the homework wasn't done or, or, or got up to something at school that I shouldn't have did, uh, got up to. And uh, that vow was broken. And I remember kind of struggling with that for a little while, thinking, ah, oh, but I want to live a life with no sin in it because I want to be a Christian. I wanted to be a do-gooder. It was kind of that sort of way of thinking. And it leaves us with the question of thinking, well, how, how should we respond when we do sin? How does God view our sin? What, you know, how, how should we approach a life when it comes to sin? Because the reality is that whoever we are, none of us are perfect people. We are imperfect. We live in an imperfect world. We make mistakes. We've made mistakes. We'll make more mistakes. And so how do we sort of navigate through life uh, with that in mind. Well, what we're going to look at today is exactly that in our Gentle and Lowly series. John, uh, who was an apostle in the Bible, a disciple of Jesus, uh, followed Jesus for years. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the book of Revelation and he wrote three letters. And in one of the letters that he wrote, First uh, John, he, he kind of addresses this issue. He wants to uh, encourage Christians around this issue of sin and how we respond to it and, and how it's dealt with. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to, I hope will be an encouragement to us and also a challenge to us by, by the same token. And so why don't you open your Bibles to uh, 1 John, towards the back of the New Testament. Um, and we're going to read from verse 2, uh, just while you turn there. It's just before the book of Revelation. And I'm going to read from chapter 2, starting at verse 1. He says this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of God. For those of you that are into titles, the message uh, it's titled today, Jesus, our advocate. And, and you'll see in these verses, just going to look at the two verses today, uh, John in each one is basically saying two things. In the first, he gives us a command, an objective, something that we must do as Christians. But then shortly after, he gives us a comfort, a promise, something that's already been done. And so we're going to look at those in turn. So, so in first, the first verse, we're going to look at this, this command that he gives us. And he begins it by saying this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you would not sin. That phrase, my little children, in the Greek, tekvia, is, a, is kind of a phrase of endearment. The, the closest thing I could kind of relate it to this day and age would be like a, a fatherly figure, you know, saying to a, a younger member of his family, hey, come here, son. Come here, I want, to, I want to have a word. Come, come listen to me. He's gonna, this is going to be a, a kind of, you know, a father talker, a wisdom. 
Many scholars believe that John wrote this towards the end of his life. He was an older fella at this time, and so he's got that kind of tone to it. He's a, he's a, he's a father figure in the church, and he's, he's writing to just encourage and try and steer and try and help and support, and, and this is what he does. And he makes his intention and his desire for them very clear. He says, hey, come here. My desire for you is that you do not sin. There's a, there's a command there, an objective, something that we must do. Do not sin. And so I want us to pause there and, and, and kind of, you know, just observe the question. Maybe uh, you're a new Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. Maybe you've been a Christian for decades. But we should still ask this question, well, what is sin? When he says do not sin, what is sin? Well, in fact, John's letter helps us because if you turn to chapter three, just one page on, in verse four, he says this about sin. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In other words, sin is, is anything that goes against God's law, God's word. It's making God kind of insubordinate. It's making God underneath kind of your own self. So God's word says that, you know, we shouldn't lie. We shouldn't uh, be deceitful. So when you don't tell the tax man about how much you really earn, or when you're not completely honest with that individual about this, you're sinning, you're going against God's law. When the Bible says, do not slander or gossip and you choose to talk about people in a derogatory way, you choose to get involved in, in pointless, needless gossip, it's sin. When God's word says that, that sex is for marriage and you decide to sleep with people outside of marriage, you're in sin. We could go on and on and on and on. There's many things that God states in his law that we shouldn't do and that we, if we do, then we're in sin. And our society at large has got a, a very relaxed view about sin these days. It's, got, it's not really an issue. Some people, you know, I've seen people with tattoos, born sinner, almost like a statement, proud of it. You know, kind of, you know, we're not really bad, you know, oh yeah, for me sins. We're kind of happy to be uh, in sin, very relaxed about it. And sometimes that can creep into the church. Sin's not really an issue. But, but on occasion, we do have to address it really is. Because in fact, to, to do evil against God, to disregard and to ignore God's laws and to disobey God is completely wicked and evil. And it's, and it's very serious. To the point where John is, is, is trying to say, no, my desire is that you don't do it. There's a command and an objective to his people. You shouldn't sin. Because sin, it offends God. God is holy and just and perfect and other. And, and when we sin against him, when we break his commands and his rules and his laws, is offensive to him. In the, in, in the same way that if you're a parent and, you're, and, and, and you've set rules and expectations for kids and they break it, it, it's frustration, it's offensive to you. You don't want them to do that. Our sin is offensive to God. And as Christians, we must be aware of that and say, no, as Christians, we don't want to sin. The Bible says elsewhere we should take every thought captive. We should try to live holy lives, pure lives, free from sin. D. L. Moody, a famous kind of American pastor, uh, back in the day, he used to say uh, about, he said, sin will keep you from this book. The shame, the guilt, the, the sin will draw you away from the Bible. But this book will keep you from sin. 
the more that we read it and walk with God and have fellowship with God and know him, it's like it will keep us away from sin. But, but the more we get involved with sin, the more that we break our fellowship with God and we can come away from it. So, so it's so important for us as Christians, the Bible says, to walk in the light of God, not to walk in darkness, not to walk in foolishness or into sin, but to walk in the light of God, to walk in obedience, not to walk in disobedience. And so John is making that crystal clear. He's commanding the people, my desire for you is that you do not sin. And, it, and if he was just to stop there, it'd be quite a challenge. Be like, oh, wow, okay. But, but in some ways, it'd be quite crushing because you think, you know, when I was 15, I made that vow, I will not sin. But then when you do, you think, oh, no. The weight of it, what, what do I do? But this is where the next part comes in. This is where not only does John give us a command and an objective, something we must do, he then wants to give us a comfort. And the comfort comes in the next verse. He says, but if anyone does sin, okay? You see, you and I, we make mistakes. People will make mistakes. It's difficult for us to not sin. In fact, it's impossible. Just a chapter before, chapter one, verse eight, John says to, to the people in the letter, if anyone says he doesn't sin, he deceives himself. They're a liar. So we, we, we can't live perfect lives because we, we're humans. We make mistakes. We're, we're fallen people. So, so as much as we strive and we should strive to try and live pure, holy lives, we will make mistakes. We will sin. And that's quite a confusing sort of bit, bit of a difficult thing to kind of, how do we pair those things away? We should try to live as Christians completely free from sin. You know, here he said, do, you know, if anyone says they don't sin, they're a liar to deceive themselves. Then here he says, do not sin. What's going on here? The, the point that John is trying to make, I believe, is that just because, you know, um, we're not going to be perfect people in these days, doesn't mean that we're unable to be free from particular sins. Just because we will sin doesn't mean that we have to sin. Let me explain. Sin doesn't have to have kind of reign over our lives. Sin doesn't reign over us. Sin doesn't have to control us or be in charge of our lives. I'll be really real with you as an example. I said this before, when I was in university, I struggled with pornography. And every time I'd watch it, I would loathe it and think, oh, why did I watch that? And I'd repent of it and come before the Lord and say, I never want to do that again, but then I would. And there would be times when I think, man, I'm, I'm never going to be free from this. This is always going to seem to have a hold over me. But then eventually, by the grace of God in my life, that chain has been broken. I can stand here to say, no, I have victory over that area of my life by the grace of God. Doesn't mean I don't always have to be alert and vigilant against that area. No, of course I do. But by the grace of God, I can say, no, I'm, I'm free from that. And have been for, for some years now. But it doesn't mean that I'm free from every other sin. It doesn't mean that occasionally I might lose my temper on the South Circle if someone cuts me up. It doesn't mean that at times I say things that I wish I didn't say. It doesn't mean I'm free from all sin, but it means that there's a particular sin there that doesn't have to have a hold over you. Maybe today there's a particular sin in your life, something that is just reoccurring, a habit or, or something that you just kind of keep getting involved in. Today you need to know you can be set free from that sin. That sin is not your master. The Bible says that we're no longer slaves to sin. You're not a slave to it. It says we're slaves to righteousness. Sin is not your master. Righteousness is your master now.
And so the point John is trying to make is that now we should design not to sin and any sin in our life, we can say, no, I can be free from that sin in Jesus' name. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the work he's doing in my life, I can be free from that. But if we do end up slipping back into sin, if we do end up singing again, you know, this serious thing, then we know, it says, but we have an advocate. I love that. Paul says, we have an advocate. We have a, someone who is on our behalf. Advocate in, in the Greek, parakletos, is kind of this word. It's used four or five times in the New Testament. Often refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. Some translate it as the word comforter or helper, one who comes beside. An advocate is essentially one who comes to support, one who comes on behalf of, one who comes to speak on your behalf or act on your behalf. And so what John is saying is that in our moments of sin, we have one, Jesus, who comes on our behalf as an advocate. He's saying, don't sin, please strive not to sin. But if you do, there's a real comfort for you. There's a promise. There's, there's, there's Jesus. You see, in your darkest moment, I don't know what that is for you, but in the darkest corner of your life, the thing that no one else really knows about, that over-dependence on alcohol, that ability that you must please others, those, that insecurity you have, that kind of resentment that you have towards particular individuals, that unforgiveness that you're just harboring, that thing that you shouldn't be watching but you keep watching, the gossip that you always just you feel you can't get involved in, the white lies you just keep telling, that, that temper that you have indoors that no one else, especially in the church, really knows about. When we're in the middle of those things, who is Jesus to us? In the middle of your sin, how does Jesus respond to you? How does he view you? Who is he to you in those moments? What's his heart to you? John says here that, that in those moments, Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is one who will defend you and intercede for you and support you and speak on your behalf. You see, the Bible is really clear that Jesus, Jesus is repulsed by your sin. Right? God is repulsed by your sin, but he's never repulsed by you. It's a famous teaching in the church. He, he, he hates the sin, but loves the sinner. When we do wrong, Jesus still loves us and he's still our advocate for us on our behalf. That's who he is. That's who Jesus is to us, that he advocates. Before the Father, he comes on our behalf and says, no, I'm gonna, he, he defends us, he, he, he pleads our case before the Father. Reminds me of kind of almost like the, a bit of a blame game. You know, when you're kids, you don't need to teach kids to learn to advocate for themselves, right? This kind of role of an advocate, someone who, who will defend and will kind of plead the case before someone. They will do it all the time for themselves. If you catch a kid misbehaving, you catch them doing something they shouldn't, they will advocate for themselves. It was, it was someone else's fault, there's a reason why it happened, it was never them. And I remember when I was a kid, actually, well, I say I was probably a teenager, me and my friend George Colston. We were at his house and, and one of the things we enjoyed to do was to play football, obviously indoors. 
playing for tennis ball. And uh, I can't remember who it was. Honestly, I can't. One of us used a tennis ball, it hit up, and it hit uh, a picture frame in, in his kind of living room, and it fell down, smashed. I'm like, oh no, what are we gonna do? His mum's not home. We got an idea. What we'll do is, is we'll put the frame up, and, and just as his mum comes in and shuts the door, because kind of his front door was right near the living room, we'll quickly knock the frame off and say like the vibrations of the mum shutting the door, knocked it down. So, so we got this plan, right? And um, as, as we see the mum approaching, we quickly put the frame up as she shuts the door. George jumps up, knocks the frame off. We sit back down. The timing's perfect. We get in. The mum opens the door. She goes, oh, I heard the smash. What is it? We said, ah, oh, no, I you, you, you must have knocked it down when you came in. I remember the mum just looked at us and said, does it look like I was born yesterday? <laughs> Joe, you better go home. I remember I saw George the following morning and he carried some war skulls, but it was, it was kind of one of those things where <laughs> she didn't buy it. But you spend your whole life as teenagers trying to plead your case and act like something wasn't you. In fact, recently I was on one of those kind of uh, days or an afternoon where you end up on, on, on YouTube because of Wimbledon uh, watching, you end up, how do I end up watching a video of Tim Henman from like 1990 something or whatever, and he's a uh, doubles match and he gets disqualified because um, he loses a point and he gets a ball and he lashes out, he hits it and he hits this ball girl in the face. And he's trying to plead his case before the referee, before the court and the judge. And he says, no, uh, um, you know, there's hard and there's very hard. I, I just hit it hard and I kind of hit it and, and she walked down and hit her in the face. <laughs> That's a convenient way to explain it. Yeah, I just hit a ball and she walked out and it hit her face. It's not, it's not really my fault. I just hit the ball. She walked into it. The judge isn't having any of it. He's like, no, you, you, you've hit a ball, a, a, a ball girl. You're disqualified. But you see this kind of desire. We want to plead our case. And sometimes when we sin, when we do wrong, our desire, our temptations can be to plead our case before the Father. But we don't have a leg to stand on. We, we can't really. And, and, and the beautiful thing is that we're free from doing that. We're free from it because we have an advocate. Jesus Christ who pleads on our behalf, who, who comes in his perfection and he says, no, you know what, you, 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 don't need to, you don't need to plead, I'm gonna plead on your behalf and I'm gonna plead as a perfect man, a righteous man, someone who, who comes and, and, and every time he pleads before the Father, every time that we, you, you picture it like a law court, like a courtroom, every time that we make a mistake, every time we sin and someone says, what is going on here? What does Christ do? He comes and he shows his hands and he shows his feet and he shows the crown of thorns, and he shows his pierced side, and he shows his broken body on the cross, and he says, I've paid for it, I've dealt with it, it's done. And every time, we're forgiven. And not only from God the Father, he also silences the devil when he does that, because the devil is an accuser, and he will come, come and rub your sin in your face and say, you do this, you do that. He's like on the opposition bench, saying, ah, oh, but what about this, what about that? But when Christ gives up and gives that testimony, He's rendered speechless. The judge says, any further from, you know, the prosecutor? He says, nothing left to say. <laughs> what can he say in the face of that evidence? What Christ has done. Christ is our great advocate. He, he deals with it. And he deals with it. And John says the reason he can deal with it is because he calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He's the Holy One, the Saviour of the world, the anointed Christ, the true mediator, 
the reconciler, the ruler, the prophet, the priest, the king, the lamb that was slain. He is the, the savior of the world. He is the righteous one. Where we were unrighteous, he was righteous. Where we made mistakes, he made no mistakes. Where we're imperfect, he was perfect. Where we fall short, he didn't fall short. He's perfect in every way. Jesus the righteous is our advocate. And because he's on our side, because he's our advocate, we can stand free before the Father. Despite our sin. That's the comfort. That's the promise to us. That's what he has already done. It doesn't mean that there's not still something for us to do. Just want to say a quick word. This doesn't mean that, that oh, just because Christ has done that, we can go and do anything we want. Should we sin because we have Jesus to defend us? No, it's the opposite. John says at the start, no, but my desire is that you do not sin. There's still a, a desire for us. I don't want to have any part in sin. I want to live as holy, blameless as I can. But if I do, thank God that I've got Jesus, the righteous, as my advocate. And then he also says that he's our, um, you know, he says he's, he's, the, he's your advocate and he's our propitiation. He's our proprietor. That's what he is. It took me about a week of preparation to learn how to say that word, let alone what it means. And let me just explain it to you. Essentially what, what it's getting on is that when it comes to propitiation, you basically have, uh, is one party appeasing another for something that's gone wrong, right? A silly example, uh, you, uh, my brother smashes uh, the window of my neighbor with a tennis ball and so we agree, you know what, to make amends, we'll cut your grass for a month. You think, okay, you've, you, you've kind of made amends with somebody, often it's with a God, with God. You kind of, how do you make amends? And just to explain it, and we'll kind of come into to close with this, because that's who Jesus is to us. I want you to imagine that there's um, you know, a young man, he gets caught speeding, and he's going so fast. It's one of those ones where they don't let you go on a speed awareness. Anyone been on speed awareness? No, I have to my sins. It's all right. I've got a great advocate, Jesus Christ. But when you go, uh, he's going so fast, they don't even offer him no speed awareness. He's straight to court. Right? And he goes to court and... Not much you can say, they've been caught on camera. You had your guilt, well, I, guilt, I, I plead guilty. The gavel comes down, bang, guilty. One thousand pound fine. Can cross a bit steep. Thousand pound fine. Or he said, well, what if I can't pay it? Well, then you have to face a jail term. And just as they're kind of announcing it out, uh, the judge steps out from behind. He's kind of caught, he takes off his robes and he walks down and he stands beside the, def the defendant who's guilty. And he takes out a thousand pound from his wallet and he puts it down. He says, I'll pay it. And you think, why has he done that? Well, it turns out the judge is actually his father. Now stick with me, I know there's conflict of interest and all that, it's just an illustration. It turns out the judge is his father. Some people might say, and he loves his son, he wants him to be free. Some might say, well, why didn't he just let him off? Well, because the whole courtroom, everyone would say, well, that's not justice. That's a disgrace, you can't just let him off because you like him, because you love him, that's not how it works. That's not just, people won't respect that judge. In the same way that God is just, God is perfect, he's righteous. Can't just let us off. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a payment that must be paid. The, the fine must be settled. Well, it's the same with us. That each one of us, has, the wrong that we've done is we've sinned against God. We've, we've done wrong against him. And the fine for that, the punishment, the Bible says, isn't a thousand pounds for a petty fine. The, the punishment, the Bible says, is death. The punishment, the wages of sin is death. The payment is blood. 
And so because he loves us, Jesus, God sends his son into the world to lay down his life, though perfect, and to die, and to take on the sins of all the people and to pay the payment of death with his own life, to pay with his own blood, to become the, the sacrifice. And he lays down his life. And so that when we stand there before the Father, though maybe we were guilty with our sin, he sees the son. He says, no, it's been paid for. He's dealt with it. He's made amends. He's, he's, he's righted your wrongs. And he's dealt with your sin. And not only has he done it for us, the Bible says he's, he's done it for the world. This forgiveness, this grace, this beauty that we've experienced is not only for us, it's for the entire world. It's for us to share with everybody that we know that they too can be forgiven if they turn and repent and follow Jesus. If they acknowledge who God is and turn away from their sin, they too can experience this forgiveness. This image we get of Jesus. Jesus is now as he was then. A crown of thorns on his head, bowing his head. Giving up his spirit, surrendering his life, laying it down as an offering for sin. Dealing with it, making sure it's paid with. And it was all for us. As the song says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. These two verses are really simple to us. I desire that you do not sin, but if you do, do not despair because you have an advocate, because the, the son, you know the judge's son, and he's your advocate and he loves you, and he's for you, and he's laid down his life for you, and there's grace in his name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world, our great advocate, who, who pleads on our behalf, who's done all that is to rescue us and save us from our sin. Thank you, Lord, that we can depend on him. But Lord, also pray will you help us to not sin, Help us by the Holy Spirit to be free from sin, to walk holy, pure, blameless lives for your glory and for your name's sake, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.